I'm gratified to note the progress in the efforts by white and Negro citizens to end an ugly situation in Birmingham, Alabama. I've made it clear since assuming the presidency that I would use all available means to protect human rights and uphold the law of the land. Through mediation and persuasion, and where that effort has failed, through lawsuits and court actions, we have attempted to meet our responsibilities in this most difficult field where federal court orders have been circumvented, ignored, or violated. We have committed all the power of the federal government to ensure respect and obedience of court decisions and the law of the land. In the city of Birmingham, the Department of Justice some time ago instituted an investigation into voting discrimination. It's supported in the Supreme Court an attack on the city's segregation ordinances. We have, in addition, been watching the present controversy to detect any violation of the federal civil rights or other statutes. In the absence of such violation or any other federal jurisdiction, our efforts have been focused on getting both sides together to settle in a peaceful fashion. The very real abuses too long inflicted on the Negro citizens of that community. Assistant Attorney General Burke Marshall, representing the Attorney General and myself on the scene, has made every possible effort to halt a spectacle which was seriously damaging the reputation of both Birmingham and the country. Today, as the result of responsible efforts on the part of both white and Negro leaders, over the last 72 hours, the business community of Birmingham has responded in a constructive and commendable fashion and pledged that substantial steps would begin to meet the justifiable needs of the Negro community. Negro leaders have announced suspension of their demonstration. And when the newly elected mayor, who has indicated his desire to resolve these problems, takes office, the city of Birmingham has committed itself wholeheartedly to continuing progress in this area. While much remains to be settled before the situation can be termed satisfactory, we can hope that tensions will ease and that this case history, which has so far only narrowly avoided widespread violence and fatalities, will remind every state, every community, and every citizen how urgent it is that all bars to equal opportunity and treatment be removed as promptly as possible. I urge the local leaders of Birmingham, both white and Negro, to continue their constructive and cooperative efforts. By 1960, Shep's homespun wit could be tweaked depending on what time of the day he took to the air. At that time, he was broadcasting on both Saturdays and Sundays during the middle of the day for just under two hours. On Saturday, April 9, 1960, he took to the air discussing a solitary trip to Coney Island. Well, you know, it's just like the second time I went to Coney Island. I'm walking along, and they have a batting cage there. One of these cages where you put a quarter in the slot, and this pitching machine pitches ten balls at you. And you stand up old Warren Louisville Slugger. Have you seen that thing? And you swing away at it, ten of them. And you can pick the kind of pitch you want. And you can set the meter. 
And there's one that says, slow lobber. And just throws a lob ball. You know, the kind that fat guys playing the skinny guys at the picnic. This kind of a ball. And then there's an underhand pitch by a left-hander. Slow, easy, comes in right over the plate. But it's not quite a lobber. You can set it all the way on up to Carl Hubble-type fastball. Ryan Dern dusts you off. And I'm telling you an exact story. This is, the, this is truly what happened. I'm not embellishing this one bit. I want to see somebody, because I don't have the guts to step up to the plate. But be that as it may, I'm walking along there, you see, and I see this batting cage. Now, this is a thing that has a deep primeval interest to all men. It's, in a sense, is a synthesis of life, which is a challenge, of course. Some machine off there in the darkness throwing fastballs down over the inside corner of the plate. And we'd better swing, boy. You don't get another one. And it is. It's a synthesis. You put it in. Everybody starts out with the same thing. Quarter in the slot. Throw it in there. You put a quarter in the slot. You start out. Everybody starts out the same. Mike Todd, guys living in the Bronx, other guys who learn how to be airplane pilots, guys who play second base for the... Do everybody starts out with the same quarter, see? And I'm walking along that street in Coney Island. By the way, I'd like to recommend this. If you ever go to Coney Island, go to Coney Island on the days when Coney Island really isn't working. The kind of off days, like at the end of the season or before the season really begins, then you, in a sense, get much more of a clear picture of what mankind is up to when he creates these vast seaside Babylonian Bacchanal centers. And I'm walking along and I see this batting cage over there. Now, for those of you who don't know what it is, a batting cage in the Coney Island sense is a cage. It's a big cage. And down at the other end of the cage, let's say the nether end of the cage, there's a big green curtain. And this green curtain says, Home Run. Or it says, Pop Up, Out, Strike Out, that kind of thing. You see, wherever you hit the ball and you drive it up against that green curtain tells what kind of hit you got or what kind of out you made. And next to the home plate, there is a home plate down at our end of the cage. Next to the home plate is a rack that has maybe 25 terrible old clubs. They're not even bats, they're clubs, which is incidentally also, I believe, very symbolic of our life. <laughs> so he picks up, the customer picks up one of these clubs, he pays his quarter, puts it in the slot, and sets the machine down at the other end, down there by that green curtain down there, is a machine that throws baseballs at you. This is true, you know, this machine does this. And this machine throws baseballs at you, and you can set a dial to determine what kind of balls you want thrown at you. Now, if you were to pick the kind of curveballs you want thrown at you in life, what kind would you pick? I mean, what kind do you hit the best? I mean, assuming that there is an element of chance in everybody's life, no matter how it's worked, what kind of curveballs would you want thrown at you? Well, let me tell you what happens. Generally speaking, you figure that you'd put in the quarter and you'd set the machine to throw these little looping balls that are thrown at you at the skinny guy, fat guy picnic softball game, you know? But the actual secret of it is when you're faced with it, you don't. You really don't. Because every man secretly likes to think that he is a Viking, standing at the prow of the ship, about to meet the biggest dragon in the Western Hemisphere, and he's going to deal with him as best he can with a very small but very agile, very wiry lance. And so here I'm standing there waiting for some guy to come along, and it's one of those vaguely watery Saturday afternoons late in the season. 
after the last Ferris wheel rider has sort of disappeared in the distance and the last kid with the Nathan hot dog has disappeared, Coney Island is slowing up, and it's it's the beginnings of October or November or something. There's a little cold air in it. And along comes a little guy. It's a true thing, and I'll, I'll remember this to the dying day. And I'm standing there watching this, and I my mind goes back immediately to this little short fat man who somehow got himself involved with Coney Island on a Saturday afternoon. And so he's working his way down towards the sea, and I'm standing across the street waiting to see who's going to play this batting cage thing. And he stops and he looks in. He looks around and he notes that there are hardly anyone hardly anyone on the street who can get away with it this time. And by the way, I think most of us, if we were given the choice, would play out our lives in absolute privacy so that no one suspects what we're doing. And this is all connected with the concept of original sin. And so <laughs> he's standing there looking the business over, reaches in his pocket and pulls out a quarter. And he pops inside the cage, throws his quarter in the slot, and looks back at the rack and picks himself out a bat, one of these great big worn clubs with tape on the handle. And it is interesting to note that he picked one of the largest bats in the rack, this little short, round man who had long since passed, had gone past the 45-year milepost long before. He picks up one of these tape bats and steps up to the plate. I couldn't see how he had set the machine. And I figured, you know, naturally, I figured he's going to get this little lobbing ball that flies out from the fat man and the skinny man pitcher there. And the next thing I knew, this machine had let one go. You see, you set the meter, and the end meter all the way over at the end says, Carl Hubble, Bob Feller. That's nothing but a fast straight ball right over the outside corner of the plate, waist high. And he sets this thing and it goes, like that. It went past him like a shot. And his bat just moved slightly. He steps up to the plate, kicks the dirt a little bit. He's waiting for the next one. I figured he's going to set the machine again, you know. He's waiting for the next one. He chokes up a little bit on the bat and hunches down over the plate. And you hear the machine going, and it goes into the into the catcher's mitt back of it. They had a big concrete catcher's mitt. And he looks down, steps back out of the box, and hitches up his pants. That's two strikes. Steps back into the box, and this time he chokes up on the bat a little more, hunches over, and I can see all of his old kid baseball playing is coming into the picture again. This time he's kicking the dirt a little bit and hunching his left shoulder down. This time, he keeps the bat sort of half over the plate, you know, hunched like Eddie Stanky used to. Eddie Stanky was not a naturally good batter. He just kept the bat hanging out over the plate all the time, and if the ball hit it, well, he was off, you see. That's that's the way he batted. And this is the way he... The guy's hunched down over there, and, and I can see this guy's been playing life like this all the time. And, and he just ticked it, a foul tip, that skitters off to the left of the plate and into the screen. <laughs> Steps back, he got a piece of it that time. He's got seven more coming now. You get ten balls for a quarter. And suddenly the machine wound up and threw him a change of pace. A small, easy, looping inside curveball, and he missed it. He swung like that. And he stepped back and protested the decision. <laughs> oh, what a beautiful drama of man's inability to cope with his own ambitions. 
Speaking of ambitions and the inability to cope, this is WOR AM and FM New York. We'll be here until 2 o'clock this afternoon. The batting cages Shep spoke of were located on Stillwell Avenue near the Coney Island boardwalk, just down the block from Nathan's. I spent many a winter afternoon on this street taking batting practice and eating Nathan's with my grandfather in the 1990s. For more info on Coney Island's place in radio history, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 92. Shep's Sunday show was terminated, and for five months he was only on Saturday afternoons at 1.15. Now listen, I want you to very, very carefully follow every word that I am about to utter. And this is serious. This is probably the most, one of the most serious things that's ever happened to this country. And I believe that I am the first man in the eastern section of this United States to have discovered it. It's a terrible plot, an awful thing that's beginning to happen. Now let me tell you exactly what happened. I come down to the station this morning. Now this, the station is a standard, ordinary sort of building. I mean, it's a, an office building, you know? There are all kinds of accountants, second-rate dentists, Guys who do tax returns, there are Christmas tree salesmen, all sorts of ordinary businessmen up and down throughout this entire gigantic honeycomb of a building. It's right here on Broadway, right in the middle of Manhattan, right in the middle of these United States. Stable country. Country that believes in right things. Has God on its side. I mean, right? Okay, correct. We know exactly where we are. So I came down here this morning. I am an employee here. I'm a hard-working man. I do exactly what I am paid to do. I am here. I do it. I go through my song and dance. I tap dance. I do my routine. I play my nose flute. I pick up my pittance and I go. I don't bother anybody, right? I have not rubbed anyone's fur the wrong way, correct? Okay. All right. Now, we know where we stand. I come down to this place this morning, and I, I, I arrive in front of my office, this little hole in the wall that they have assigned to two or three of us. And I reach in my pocket and take out the key. I have a key, a, a regular Yale lock key. You know, the official kind of key that opens apartments on the east side and that. And I go up to this this door and I try to put the key in. Nothing happens. I turn it over and I try it again. Nothing happens. So then I take out my other gigantic pile of keys that are all attached to this long chain that keep falling out of my pocket and breaking at the horn and hard art and all that. So I one by one I try each one knowing full well that, that none of these are the keys to this door. But a man can't believe such a thing can happen. This is a Saturday morning. The sun is shining. There are tourists walking up and down as though nothing is happening right there on Times Square. Say, now listen carefully. This has to do with you, not me, you, all of us. And so I'm beginning to work around with this lock, and I suddenly, it, it dawns on me, I can't get in the office, I'm locked out. I call the, the, the air conditioning, the, the guys who, who maintain the, none of them can get in. The doors are all locked, and none of their keys work. <laughs> this is on Saturday morning in this country, America. I can't get in the office. Everything, all, all the things I own, all the important things are locked in that office now. My nose flute, my commercials, what else is there in my life? So I come up to the studio here, and all these people here are totally unconcerned, not knowing what is occurring. Now, I'd like to point out just exactly what this means. I have a suspicion that this has happened. It, 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 it's, it's an awful thought. But do you realize this town is vulnerable? We are wide open on Saturday mornings. All you poor clowns are sitting out in Darien. You poor idiots are sitting on your duffs out there in New Rochelle. 
not knowing nothing about what's going on in your office on a Saturday morning. And I'm, I'm inquiring around here, and I asked the elevator operator, I said, what, 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 was, was there anybody up here? He says, why, yes, a short, stout man wearing a dark overcoat with a velvet collar appeared, carrying a thin briefcase and a large ring of keys. He left, he said, within ten minutes. It could very well be possible that this man, this short, stout man, is only one of a large phalanx of short, stout men bearing briefcases who have appeared all over Manhattan. Do you realize what this could do to this country if Monday morning two and a half million men descend upon Manhattan with the wrong keys? What is the first assumption you make when, when your key doesn't work in the lock? Of course, you know what the first thing that you think of in this, in this town. You arrive at your office, you try the key, you immediately get in the elevator, go down and head for the unemployment office. That's all there is to do. Either that or you go right back home on the 1037 and you arrive back in, in Darien. You go home and you say, I left my keys. Where are my keys? I can see this beautiful scene of the guy arriving home. He says, hey, uh, uh, hey, Mabel, I left my keys for crying out loud. It's about 11 o'clock now. I'm, uh, <laughs> and, and his wife says, what do you mean you left your keys? You don't have, there are no keys here. I, I must have taken the wrong keys, Mabel. Come on, now, give me them keys. Hurry up. I left them on the, on the buffet for crying out loud. Hurry up. And she goes in and rustles through the buffet. She says, there's a couple of keys to the garage here. She says, well, no, come on, the keys. Give me the keys quick. These keys don't work. These are the only keys you've had, Charles. His program was shifted to weeknights at 11.15 p.m. for 45 minutes. On February 27, 1961, he spoke about shifting back to the late-night time slot. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's an odd thing, this business of time. Now, no, don't, don't, don't duck away and say it's a cliché. Now, stop it. It isn't so much of a cliché as you think. That a person in... Well, I hate to say radio because it certainly isn't exclusively radio, but a person who, who lives by a kind of measuring of time, and certainly radio does this, you begin to have a very, it's almost like a taste. How can I say it? That time is almost tangible. You can almost feel it. And I can tell you this, that being on at this hour between 1145 quarter to 12, that period from 11.15 to midnight, is about as different, I can't describe it except to say that it's a completely different dish of tea. Uh, I've been doing for the last three or four years, ever since we left the nighttime all-night show, which was in 1956, I've been doing all sorts of sort of half-daytime, half-nighttime things. And this is like returning to something that you haven't eaten for a long time, but you vaguely remember that you liked. And suddenly you're having it again, and it tastes even better than you thought it tasted. And it makes everything, it's a very, very odd thing, this business of time. I also suspect that it is applicable in a, on a much wider scale, too. That almost everything that we do in our lives is very closely and tightly governed by this, this almost totally, uh, in fact, there are some philosophers who say it is a completely imaginary concept called time. No one has ever been able to determine whether time exists for rocks or not, not actually. Uh, it's a thing we have created, but whatever it is, it, it both controls us and we think we control it. 
and here I am sitting, and it's the time between 11.15 and midnight for me is about like a, a tiny drop of something that I am used to having a glass full or a cup of. But the drop is so much sweeter because it is only a drop that a cup would be too much now, that the drop is very important to me. A kid wrote me a note saying, Shepard, says, you sound, since you got on the night show, he said, back again at night, you sound like a fish that's been flopping in the sun on a pier that's been thrown back in the ocean by a kindly old shaft lady. <laughs> well, there's some truth in that. This format, at 11.15 p.m. until 1964, and then at 10.15 until 1977, became what Shepard is today most remembered for in terms of radio broadcasting. On Monday, October 21st, 1963, he had this to say about how his peers perceived their era, as well as why some college kids were gravitating towards Barry Goldwater rather than John Kennedy. That old, old Uncle Tom, all right, here we go, one... Hey, what are you, that's not ranch-time cowboy. That's Canadian capers. Hey, cut it out. Hold it, hold it. Oh, oh hold it. That's the most weirdly uh, labeled record in there. You just have to, it's ragtime cowboy. Oh, you hold it there for a while. You, you find it now. I'll, I'll struggle away. You know, speaking of the struggle, I'll tell you, it's Monday night. We're all here, at least for this moment. All of us are here together. We're all 20th century men. Some of us are more 20th century than others. That's true. Uh, <laughs> that's you know that's something the that very 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 few people who talk about. You know, where we always assume you know that since everybody's alive in 1964, that they're all observing 1964. You guys walking around scratching. I would like to know the eyes through which guys see things. I'll bet a lot of guys... Really, I'd love to look through other guys' eyes as well as have other guys look through mine, too. I don't know how to even phrase this. But if you're walking down the street and, you, and here's this guy ahead of you and you look through his eyes and all of a sudden, as you see the world, you look... Just say you look up 6th Avenue. You're walking up 6th Avenue. And there's a guy ahead of you. He's wearing a brown suit, see, and he's got one of these shapeless gray hats on, you know, that men wear, and his coat sort of hangs down on the back, and you can see it's rump-sprung, the pants, and the, the knees are bagging a little bit, and he's sort of shuffling along there just for one 30-second shot. Think how fantastic it would be to suddenly be behind his eyes and to see 6th Avenue through his eyes. All of a sudden, for just for one brief instant, you're looking at 1923. <laughs> he sees all this stuff going past him, you know, the cars and the guys yelling and hollering, the kids and, the, and all the shops and stuff, and he sees none of that. He sees nothing that has happened since 1923. And what he does see, once in a while, it sneaks in on his vision, of course. He can't help it. And he just sort of looks the other way or says, oh, for damn nuts. And just keeps going on, you know. And then on the other hand, I'm curious if it could possibly be that there is quite the opposite. You're walking along behind this tall, thin, razor-like guy. He's wearing a dark suit and he's carrying an attache case. And he's got this sharp Adams hat, you know, and he's going along there. And you look through his eye. Suddenly, you're, you're looking at good old friendly 6th Avenue, you know, all the bums walking around in the shops that say, back issue magazines, whoopee department, lust, 
department in the rear, you know, and you're walking along, and there's the juice stands and the whole jazz, and all of a sudden, you're behind his eyes, and you see Sixth Avenue for one 30-second shot, and there it is, a great broad avenue, thousands of 1984 cars moving in a thin stream, and up on each side, you see these great buildings rising, great packages all looking like the Pan Am building. Each one higher and higher and higher it goes, higher into the air. The Pan Am building gets higher. and Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. They're all growing higher. And for one brief 30-second shot, oh, oh, you see the brave new world. Thousands of people on moving sidewalks going left and right. It is impossible to tell one sex from the other. They're all in a clean, beautifully fitting stretch uniform of polyethylene cloth. <laughs> oh, cut it, cut it, hold it, Dick. That's enough yelling. Hold it, hold it. Hold it, dang. Hold it, hold it, hold it. It's not, no laughing matter there. Oh, no laughing matter. I'll tell you this, though. For all the laughing and yelling and hollering that we do, and for all the, the angry writing that's going on and all the marching around and the hoopla, it is a fact that this is probably one of the most exciting times to be alive that possibly has occurred within the past 200 years. In spite of the fact that there is a great nostalgia for a time past and gone that never really was among large numbers, has it ever occurred to you that most of the college kids today are suffering under a kind of 19th century mania. You can go into probably 25 places within a mile radius here of this area where we're broadcasting from and find places that are decorated, that the entire scheme, the entire feeling of everything as you come into there is what the guys who are in there like to feel is roughly 1885. The Tiffany lamp is hanging there. And the, these, these people yet somehow feel that they're deep in the middle, and they really do feel that they're right in the middle of the 20th century. They, they, they feel that they're really, they're really with what's happening. <laughs> and yet many of the chicks uh, wear roughly 1840-type uh, Sears Roebuck dresses. They really do. They're, they're going for this in a very big way. They pull their hair back, you know, like the, uh, the, the idea of the 19th century American Western pioneer and sitting over in the corner is this, is this 19-year-old kid, and he's got his Sears Roebuck guitar. I'm just a lonesome cowboy. I'm a wandering down the trail. Oh, I'm a lonesome cowboy, and I don't know where I'll die. rink a tink a tink a tink And right outside you hear, the traffic of 7th Avenue South is roaring past. This, this is a, this is the thing that they're going to one day write a lot about, about our time. It's the kind of running away from our time that a large numbers of people went through and did. Curious, very curious phenomenon. And of course, 19th century politics is very important to a 19th century mind. And <laughs> this is the truth. And, and, uh, one of the reasons, of course, why Barry Goldwater is appealing to a large number of 19th century kids is because he has a 19th century sense of the oversimplification. He deals with the 19th century world. In those days, of course, uh, of course probably the last of the true 19th century men was Theodore Roosevelt. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt just, Bully, can't bully! Hey, 
well, go on, chase them bladders a lesson. Chase them a lesson. I say that the American flag should fly over. Oh, hey, let's go, Dick. Watch it there, Dad. I say, whoop, whoop. whoop. All right, that's it. Boy, here, Dick, it's the other. There you, there's ragtime. There you go. There you go. He always sings. Raggedy music to the cattle as he swings back and forward in the saddle on a horse, pretty good horse, sink to break to break. There we go. Let's try that again, Dick. Hold it, hold it. I've been working. Hold it, Dick, Dick. Hold it, hold it. I've been working on Ragtime Cowboy. Now, you get that queued up. That's the one we've been looking for. You get that queued up. I've been working on this since the fall of 1960, and I'm going to get that bridge yet.